Welcome back to part four of the Garden Weekly Bible Study through the book of Hebrews. Today we are going to be looking at verses four through six, um, and I've titled this session The Firstborn Son. We're going to be finishing off the introduction to the book of Hebrews and then taking a look at the first few quotations of the Hebrew scriptures that Hebrews has, which are Absolutely, this book is full of them, um, but they're often misunderstood. So I'm going to start by looking at verse 3 all the way through verse 6 here to give us the complete thought. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. So let's break this down. We're going to start in verse 4. And we are going to try and find out why Jesus can sit down at the right hand of the Father. In verse 3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why can he do that? The answer is because he has inherited a name which is more excellent than theirs name. All right. And that leads to three questions. Number one, what is this name? Number two, what does it mean to inherit a name? And number three, what does it mean to become superior to angels? So we have the name, we have the inheritance, and then we have the question of superiority. So whatever this name is, is not immediately clear, but we can do some deduction. Whatever the name is, it's earned. Um, His inheritance and his glorification at the right hand of the Father comes because of his making purification for sins. So because of his purification for sins, he sat down having become superior to the angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So this inheritance is tied to his purification for sins. In Hebrew and Jewish culture, a name is more than an identifying label, right? Uh, My name is Joel, and that name doesn't tell you something intrinsic about me necessarily. But in Jewish culture and in the Hebrew scriptures, it often does. 
Uh, you can think of Abram or Abraham. Uh, God changes his name in Genesis 17. Abraham meaning father of a multitude. Jacob in Genesis 25 verse 26. The supplanter is the literal meaning of Jacob. Um, and you can think of how he supplanted his brother Esau. He was grabbing the heel of Esau as he came out of the womb. And you can think of Nabal in 1 Samuel 25, which means fool. And that's just a couple. This is all over the scriptures. So what is the name? I think the name that Jesus has inherited is Son. And there's a few reasons why I think that. Um, which we are going to come to in a second here. And I know that I already talked about in a previous session, the sons of God. So doesn't that mean that other uh, angelic beings also have the name son? And Jesus was a son in Hebrews 1 verse 2. And you can go back to a previous lesson to see about that. But when we look at verses 5 and 6, we see the declaration of this son as my son, the begotten son. He shall be to me a son. And he went when he brings the firstborn son into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So as we investigate these questions, the sonship that Jesus has received is more than an ordinary sonship. It's a firstborn status sonship. It's an inheritor sonship. And this last part of the introduction then transitions us perfectly into the rest of chapters 1 and 2, which is an extended proof that Jesus, the son, not just a son, but now the son, is prophesied to be greater than angels greater than the other sons of God from the Hebrew scriptures. So now we move to verse 5. Why is the author of Hebrews proving that Jesus is greater than the angels? Well, if you want a sneak peek, you have to go all the way into Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, when the author of Hebrews will start to explain the application of these proofs. In verse 1, he's going to just be talking about the proof that Jesus, the son, is greater than the other sons, greater than the angels. Chapter 2, he'll start to apply this and explain why this is important. We'll get there in a few weeks if you don't want to look ahead. But for now, we're going to look at verse 5 here. So we start with 4. 4 is a connective tissue, especially of Paul's writings, a lot of the New Testament. The word for especially in the letters, does a lot of work. It connects what came before with what comes after. It explains, it says, um, this is explaining the previous or, and so on. Um, so these verses, uh, chapter, uh, verses five and six, are going to explain the name of verse four. So in verse four, we have the name that the son has inherited is more excellent than the angels. Four, he's saying, and I'm going to prove it now. I'm going to show you from the Old Testament that this son is greater than the other sons, greater than the angels. So the introduction to these quotes, 
To which of the angels did God ever say? The implied answer, of course, none. God did not say this to any of the other angels. So, whatever follows from these two quotations, whatever it is, cannot apply to angels. Right? Whatever we conclude from here cannot apply to angels. So next week, we're actually going to do a deeper breakdown of these two passages. Or actually, just the first one. Um, And then the next week will be the second one. Because they are very important messianic passages that prophesy the Messiah. But not exactly in the way that you might think. So our first one there is Psalm 2-7. And then we have 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 14 is where the second one comes from. Like I said, we're going to break this down in deeper detail, the first one especially, next week. But for now, we're just going to look at it from the lens of Hebrews specifically. Why is the author of Hebrews quoting this passage? And it is one of the most quoted texts to prove Jesus's divinity and that he is the Messiah. So in Psalm 2, what we see is a song of a king, probably David, being talking about his being given uh, a kingship or a reign over God's people on the throne of Jerusalem. And at his enthronement, we find this quote, as for me, I, God, and I've added That part here, the God part, is from me, just explaining who the I is. Have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, as we hit verse 7, the I changes. The perspective of this psalm changes to the son, to the anointed one, uh, to the king who is uh, now speaking. I, the son, will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So the first often misunderstood word in this passage and in the quotation that the author of Hebrews uses is begotten. Traditionally, or in normal usage, I guess it's not in normal usage anymore, but during the King James time, what it would mean is to bear a child, right? Through normal reproductive means, in general, you're bearing a child. But that cannot be the meaning here. If you just read it plain text, that cannot be what it means. This king is being made a son at his enthronement. This is not a person who is being born. This is not a baby who's saying, I will tell of this degree. Today I have been begotten by God. No, this is a king who is being enthroned. He is receiving the crown upon his head. Today he is begotten. In Hebrew poetry, the second line is a restating of the first in different terminology. Usually, not always, but usually. There's a line and then a second line that expands on or rephrases the first. So I think that what this means, today I have begotten you, is basically the same as you are my son. 
they're linked. You are my son. Repeat this in different terminology. Today I have begotten you. God is placing this king into the line of his inheritance. He is becoming a son of God, the son of God. Um, So Psalm 2 probably refers to David. That's what most interpreters think based on Acts, the book of Acts, and we'll see that next week. But it relates to David in some way. But this cannot be entirely fulfilled by David. It just can't. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Can this be David? Well, no. Assuming that prophecy is real, God is real, that this is true, David never saw the ends of the earth as his own possession. Right? In Psalm 2, 9 through 12, here, you shall break them, them being nations, with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Oh, therefore, kings, be wise, and so forth. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Kiss the son, meaning um, effectively submit. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. David did not receive the ends of the earth as his possession. Not all of the nations of the earth were blessed who found refuge in David. In Psalm 2, 2, in verse 2 of this psalm, we find the anointed one, the Messiah, and that finds partial fulfillment in David. David was an anointed one. David was a king over Jerusalem. He was a great king over Jerusalem, deeply flawed, but a man after God's own heart. But the ultimate fulfillment of this passage, to have a king in Jerusalem who people find blessing when they take refuge in them, who has as an inheritance and a possession the ends of the earth, that cannot be David. It has to be his descendant, Jesus. That's the son that the book of Hebrews is writing about. That's why this quote happens in the book of Hebrews, because this son of Hebrews is the one who will receive the inheritance of all things, as we've seen in verse 3 and 4. Jesus is the ultimate inheritor of all creation. Now we move to 2 Samuel, the second quote here. Verses, chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is God talking to David again, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So, who is this talking about? The author of Hebrews thinks that it's talking about Jesus. At the time, the obvious um, candidate for fulfillment would be Solomon. Because David 
in the context of this, we'll see this in a couple weeks, was attempting to build a temple. God tells him, you won't build my temple, but, and starts into this. The offspring after him shall build a house for my name. The initial thought would be Solomon's temple. Okay, sure, makes a lot of sense. Solomon did build a temple, but Solomon also failed in his duty to actually live and rule with a heart for God. And his desires for earthly passions, especially women, (laughs) turned him toward serving other gods. And certainly, his throne was not established forever. David and Solomon's throne, their lines ended. They were not always on the seat of Jerusalem as kings, especially during the exile times, for example. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Partially, but Solomon walked away from God. He served other gods. I will establish his kingdom. How can this be about Solomon? The kingdom was already there. The Israelite kingdom already existed. It existed in Saul, it existed in David, and was passed down to Solomon. So what does it mean for God to establish his kingdom? Solomon's kingdom didn't last forever, so this cannot find its full fulfillment in Solomon. Yes, the initial context of this passage talks about the building of the temple, and Solomon did build a temple. Solomon was an anointed one who built the temple of God in Jerusalem. In Later in verse 14, God also claims that the son will be beaten and battered by humans. As far as we know, that never happened to Solomon. In verse 11, we see that a true home will be given for Israel where they will never again know war. That didn't happen with Solomon. The son is talked about, the son that is talked about here, the true inheritor of the throne of God's people, the one to bring true rest. Here we have verses 10 and 11. Dwell in their own place. Don't they already dwell in their own place? I will give you rest from all your enemies. They already had rest. They were already in their promised land. The true inheritor of the throne of God's people, the one to bring true rest, is not Solomon, but a further descendant of David's line, Jesus. That's why the author of Hebrews quotes this. That's Jesus. All right, so now we continue into verse 6. Continues with a third quotation, but with some strange commentary. And again, when he, God, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. What does it mean to bring a firstborn into the world? Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons would agree, though in different ways, that this talks about God bringing Jesus 
first creation of God into the world, though probably through his birth in Bethlehem. This is not talking about Jesus being the first creation of God. I don't even think that this passage is talking about Jesus being born into Bethlehem, though that is a possible reading, and it's probably the one that you would think of on first look at the passage. But first, we have to question what firstborn means. We have to think about the first five verses that we've already read. So we have to take that context. So the author of Hebrews is pointing out again and again that this son, Jesus, was given a unique sonship and inheritance unlike the angels. Right? So firstborn relates to sonship, but it is not like the angels, sons of God. So the angels may have been sons of God, or some of them are sons of God. The angels are glorious, they're in in the throne room, but they are not given a sonship like this. In the Jewish culture of the time, a firstborn implies the one who receives the inheritance. Think of Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn from his mother's womb. He had the inheritance, but he gave it away to Jacob. And Jacob became the firstborn. He became the inheritor of the bulk of his father's um, property. We are talking about inheritance when we're using this language of firstborn. And that also sets the context for into the world. So I don't think that into the world means Jesus' birth. Let me go over here. Not Jesus' birth. Because, number one, that's not when he received his inheritance. Jesus wasn't born and immediately became the inheritor. He became the inheritor after his resurrection and ascension. And we'll see that in in a minute. Number two, Jesus' birth is when he emptied and humbled himself. Not exaltation. And this, inheritance bringing the firstborn into the world, God's angels worshiping him, is talking about inheritance and exaltation. We can see a humbling in Hebrews 2.9, Philippians 2. So what does it mean? I think, to paraphrase, this firstborn into the world means something like when he brings the firstborn into his inheritance of the world. When God makes Jesus the inheritor of the world. It's a similar statement to what the last two quotes have been proving. Right? That again relates Hebrews 1.6 back to Hebrews 1.5. Again. Which means it has the same purpose. The same, it's proving the same thing. There was a prophesied son of David and God who would receive all creation as an inheritance. That's what this quote is trying to prove. When that happened, the angels were commanded to worship. 
This quote comes from the Greek version of Deuteronomy 32.43 and from Psalm 97. Here I have the Septuagint, which means the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible of Deuteronomy 32.43. Delight, O heavens, with him, and worship him, you sons of God. I'm going to underline that sons of God, highlight it, circle it a few times. This is what the author of Hebrews, um, this is the line that the author of Hebrews is looking at. Worship him, you sons of God. He changes sons of God to angels to relate with the other points that he's making. But this is the line. Worship him, you sons of God. Where have we seen sons of God before? Where have we looked at sons of God before? Well, if you follow from our previous lessons, from our previous uh, Bible studies, then you you know. And it continues. Delight, O nations, with his people, and prevail with him, all you angels of God. Right? So we have a parallelism between sons of God and angels of God in these two verses. For he, the son, will avenge the blood of his sons. He will avenge and he will repay the enemies with vengeance. I'm sorry, the he is God here. And he will repay those who hate, and the Lord will cleanse out the land of his people. So this reading is from the ESV also. You can also find it in the ESV um, because they take the Septuagint and apply it to this verse, as well as the Dead Sea Scrolls, both of which agree on this verse. It's complicated and probably confusing if you're not familiar with translations and Septuagint and all those types of things. It doesn't matter. Um, those reasons are boring, whatever the case. I think that this probably is the original reading confirmed by both the Septuagint, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and by the author of Hebrews using this quote. So um, this worship him, you sons of God, whatever the case, we're taking that out and um, applying it to Jesus here. So this passage as a whole of Deuteronomy 32 is talking about the day of the Lord when final ultimate justice will be paid up onto the wicked and the Lord once again rules the whole world, right? The Lord will cleanse out the land of his people. God once again rules the whole world. So as we saw earlier, uh, in another lesson, I believe lesson two, in Deuteronomy 32, verse eight, we saw that Yahweh God gave a subordinate rulership to the sons of God after Babel. You can also see this in Psalm 82, where God um, castigates and condemns these uh, subordinate gods, these sons of God, for failing to rule well over the nations. So this passage, speaking of God, has been shifted by the author of Hebrews to point to the Son. The Son is the one who inherits rulership of the world, and the one who, inher and the one who inherits receives the worship of the sons of God, which is equated with angels. Angels, for the author of Hebrews, are sons of God. And this brings us back to part three of our study. This Son is greater than the other sons. He is not like them. He is a unique Son, the creator and inheritor of all creation, one worthy of worship, 
and only God is worthy of worship. Revelation 22 verses 8 and 9. This son is not the father, but he is God. So what have we learned about the son from these four or these three verses? Number one, Jesus is the inheritor of the name son. That is what everything has been driving to in this in Hebrews so far. Jesus is the inheritor. Number two, Jesus is the begotten son. Not created. Made the inheritor. And again, in number three, Jesus is the worshipped firstborn inheritor. Jesus became the inheritor through what he did. And we're going to continue through the book of Hebrews and we're going to see that. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you for studying Hebrews with me here. The Garden Weekly is a weekly newsletter and ministry helping you to find Christian videos, podcasts, and articles that will deepen your understanding of scripture, God, and the world around us. If you'd like to subscribe to the newsletter, you can go to thegardenweekly.com. The link will be in the description. And if you enjoyed the video, hit the thumbs up, subscribe, bell, you know the drill. Thank you for being with me again. My name is Joel Fisher, and I'll see you next time.